As the nuclear industry continues to push its lie that nuclear energy is somehow clean, green, sustainable, it's not. We don't get many chances to hear from people who are witnesses to what happens at the start of the nuclear fuel chain. That's because they are usually indigenous, poor, and or people of color. But radiological contamination of people and the environment starts as soon as uranium is ripped out of the ground and has been affecting those contaminated by it for decades. And the industry does not want you to think about that. They want you narrow-focused on energy generation only. And then you hear from someone who has lived with the impact of uranium mining and fought against it, and they tell you, Miners being overexposed to radiation, they're being experimented on for the sake of the profits of the company. They want to improve production at the mills. Same thing when there was an accident in the one uranium mine, Cigar Lake Mine. Flooding happened within the mine and the alarms were going off, which were working properly. But they were told, just ignore the alarms, just get in there and do it. They didn't have protective gear, they didn't have respirators, anything like that. And a lot of miners, some of whom are my family members, were exposed. Well, when you hear a first-person truth like that, coming from someone who has been on the front lines of dealing with nuclear contamination her entire life, you start to get a sense of how long and deadly that nuclear fuel chain is and how it spares no one from being stuck in that seat we all share. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we share experts from the UK's Stop New Nuclear webinar on uranium-impacted communities, indigenous people's nuclear issues from around the world. We'll hear from Candace Paul of the English River First Nations in northern Saskatchewan, Canada, Leona Morgan of the Diné people of Arizona and New Mexico, and Ashish Biruli of the traditional Adivisi people from India. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than can be stopped by presidential executive order. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, May 7, 2019, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting here in the U.S., where the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has cited Holtec International, the company looking to buy Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station, with two violations related to canisters it manufactured to store radioactive spent fuel. One relates to a design change in the 4-inch stainless steel bolts 
used to help keep the casks in their place in their 18-foot storage canisters. Four canisters with broken bolts were loaded at San Onofre with no way to remove them before the problem was discovered. While one violation was classified as potentially safety significant, the NRC decided to forego a civil fine against Holtec because blah, blah, blah. The dog ate the homework. And the NRC is a captured agency owned and controlled by the nuclear industry. Holtec is now saying that scratches and gouges on canisters at San Onofre are no big deal. Even though in its final safety report, filed with the NRC, Holtec said there is no risk of scratching or gouging. Holtec's solution to being caught with their pants down and lying about the canisters? The company has decided to resolve the issue by changing the wording, eliminating any references to risks of scratching, and instead saying the canisters, quote, may come in contact, end quote, with some features of the enclosure. According to Torgan Johnson of the Del Mar-based Samuel Lawrence Foundation, in any engineered system, if you have metal-to-metal abrasion that wasn't intended, you have a defective system, and that system needs to be recalled. Clearly, we have a defective system here, and may soon in Massachusetts. Meanwhile, we've learned that Holtec is selling double-sided, thicker canisters to store the waste in Chernobyl. Why can't we get that here? Maybe it's because, typically for the industry, California's three big major utilities spent at least $1.3 million lobbying state government in just the first three months of 2019. And a major portion of that was regarding Southern California Edison dealing with San Onofre and Pacific Gas and Electric dealing with Diablo Canyon. The flood stage for the Mississippi River continues to rise, putting in jeopardy once again Cooper Nuclear, which is just south of Omaha, Nebraska, on the Missouri River, and in North St. Louis, the buried World War II nuclear weapons waste, illegally buried nuclear weapons waste, at the West Lake Landfill. There is danger that there may be flooding there, which would further spread contaminants. And for a great example as to how the nuclear industry gets away with manipulating their information, here's... Nuclear Hot Seed Nuclear Hot Seed Nuclear Hot Seed None that's on the week The soul-dead cubicle drones who flog out articles pro-nuclear no matter what the source material says really worked overtime on this one. The headline reads, Subcritical Plutonium Test Data and Schedule Unaffected by Radiation Leak. A little bit backwards, don't you think? Now, according to the National Nuclear Security Administration, or NNSA, in subcritical plutonium tests, they explosively compress plutonium without causing a large nuclear explosion. The experiments help the NNSA determine whether aging plutonium can still provide the explosive yield specified by nuclear weapons designed during the Cold War. Our tax dollars at non-work. During the test in question, there was an unprecedented breach of the protective steel container. But, this article crows, the breach has not set back the schedule for other planned subcritical tests. This despite the personnel at Nevada National Security Site needing about a month to decontaminate the room used in the experiment. They, quote, 
later identified cracks in the vessel's fastener washeners, but, quote, found no evidence that the cover plates on the vessels were fractured. Doesn't mean that they weren't fractured, just means that they didn't find anything. Then we learn that the contractor inspected the vessel visually, but did not do any further tests, quote, to avoid the risk of releasing more radioactive material. So more radioactive material could leak. The leak was unprecedented. There are fastener washeners that were found to be cracked, but they're not looking any further into it because, phew, the test data and the schedule remain unaffected. And that's why whoever's behind this test, this decision, and this story, all of you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that sound a week. In Spain, that country's main electricity providers have reached an agreement to extend the life of the country's oldest nuclear plant until its planned closure between 2027 and 2035. Good luck with that. A new study of 22,000 Russian atomic workers has established a statistically significant correlation between hypertension, meaning high blood pressure, and chronic low-dose radiation exposure, where the cumulative radiation dose is the governing factor. Prolonged exposure to low-dose radiation may increase the risk of heart disease and stroke. And we will link to an article, Nuclear Power Stations Discharge Radioactive Carbon, Produce Carbon During the Entire Fuel Chain, and Are Not Carbon-Free. It's from Mining Awareness, and we will have it up on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 411. We'll have this week's featured speakers in just a moment. But first, let's face it. Most mainstream media pays only fleeting attention to a story about nuclear anything when it bobs to the top of the news cycle. That's why you and so many others who want to be in the know turn to Nuclear Hot Seat for your news about all things nuclear. Everything reported here is researched and verifiably sourced, even if it is often delivered with more than a little attitude. Nuclear Hot Seat presents nuclear stories with continuity and context, supported by interviews with genuine experts, women and men who do not go along with the radioactive industry's party line, and they've got the experience and the footnotes to prove what they're saying. In order to provide you with this information every week, we incur costs, and without your support, Nuclear Hot Seat would not be able to continue following this onslaught of nuclear madness. So if you're grateful for the news, background information, and insights you get from the show, please help us keep going. Do so by making a donation. It's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. For those of you on a budget, and is there anyone out there who isn't these days, we have set up an easy, inexpensive way for you to help us out. You can... Buy Nuclear Hot Seat a monthly cup of coffee. Send the show a monthly $5. The equivalent of a cup of coffee and a nice tip to a barista, but trust us, we won't be buying any overpriced coffee. Your donation will be helping us meet the show's many expenses. Making that sustaining donation is a snap. Just click on the big green donate button at NuclearHotSeat.com. Please do what you can and know whatever you do to help I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's this week's feature. Last week, 
the UK group Stop New Nuclear, spearheaded by activist and former nuclear hot seat interviewee Nikki Clark, put together a webinar on uranium-impacted communities. This featured indigenous nuclear activists from around the world. The full webinar is well worth your time and attention. Here, we bring you the three key leaders who spoke on how uranium mining and other nuclear issues have played out in their traditional communities. First, we hear from Candace Paul. She is an artist and activist from English River First Nations in northern Saskatchewan, Canada, and she works with Committee for Future Generations, dealing with uranium and nuclear waste issues. We've had uranium mining in Saskatchewan, Canada for 60 years, and it's all in our northern Dene territory. Our entire territory is being explored for uranium, has had uh, more than 40 legacy mines that were never cleaned up properly. Uh, we have one active mine and two on shutdown right now. But we also have licenses for three more mines to open up and uh, applications that are coming through. And at the same time, we have our government um, trying to uh, erode the environmental protections in our country. The uranium mining has had a lot of impact on our territories. It's, uh, it's right now the Key Lake mining mill has a uranium spill that got into the groundwater and the regulator doesn't even force chemical to have a prevention. It went through a floor in the mill where the most toxic and radioactive materials are dealt with it corroded and absorbed into that concrete floor and when they should have had an impermeable floor. So this is some of the stuff uh, we, we deal with here. Miners being overexposed to radiation, they're being experimented on for the sake of the profits of the company. They want to improve production at the mills. Same thing when there was an accident in the one uranium mine, Cigar Lake Mine, Flooding happened in, within the mine and the alarms were going off, which were working properly, but they were told, just ignore the alarms, just get in there and do it. They didn't have protective gear, they didn't have respirators, anything like that. And a lot of miners, some of whom are my family members, were exposed. Cameco is the second largest producer of uranium in the world. And they have mines here in the U.S., in Kazakhstan, and in Australia. And they just do whatever they want, basically. The food chain on, in our north, our people are still really dependent on natural foods from the land. The moose, the caribou, the fish, the berries, the medicines. All of these things are being altered by the exposure to radiation. I don't think there's a moose or a caribou or a fish that ever asked chemical to mess with their DNA. And the same thing is happening to our people. Cancer rates are starting to soar. Diseases like lupus, multiple sclerosis, kidney disease are all on the rise up here. These foods that we depend on were the healthiest foods on the planet. Our people used to live into their hundreds. Now they're starting to die in their 30s, 40s, 50s. Or they're suffering from cancer and getting cured. So that doesn't count <laughs> and by, by their standards. 
And this is what I see about the uranium industry is, uh, and the whole nuclear industry is, they don't care if you got cancer, if they can donate a little bit of money to cancer research, MS research, which chemical is big on, they donate to all of those things, kidney disease, the renal clinic for the province is in chemicals sponsorship. They sponsor all kinds of that, but it's because they are making us sick. There's a place called Ronald McDonald House in Saskatoon. It serves families whose kids are, are very ill. Most of the kids that go there are from the north. The families that go there are from the north. And Camico, there used to be a map on the wall of all the places where all the kids were from. And it showed this big cluster of kids from the north. Cameco donated a million dollars. That map's gone. They don't want the clusters to show. Our areas up here are pretty remote. Some of the places don't even have roads, uh, except in winter time. And the roads are really rugged. So people don't see us. But taxi drivers, medical taxi drivers from the north for rehabilitation, physiotherapy and stuff like that. And almost all of the people in there, the kids in there are from northern Saskatchewan. A lot of deformed kids, mentally handicapped kids now. We didn't have that 40 years ago. So we're starting to see the intergenerational impact. The animals in our region, like the moose, the caribou, they're becoming scarce. Part of it is because of all the activity in their habitat, which was basically, you know, the Dene people used the rivers for transportation. They didn't have roads until just, until all this exploration started. And now there's roads. If you look at Google map, there are roads everywhere. There's exploration going on inside lakes. Right now, one of the lakes up north, which was a beautiful, beautiful, clear lake, really gorgeous lake. They plan to dike three sides of it and do an open pit mine there. And when they're done open pit mining, they're going to go underground from there. And all of that lake is going to be contaminated from that open pit mining. All of that water runs north and south. It's like the government of Canada has made it okay to turn a lake into a tailings pit. They just rename it. It's a tailings pit. It's no longer a lake. Recently in British Columbia, there was a, you know, not a uranium mine, but there was a big tailings dam bill a few years ago. And there have been absolutely no consequences on that company or that industry. So our expectations of being protected in this environment are nothing. We have a whistleblower's hotline, our phone. People call in, workers call in about things that they've been made to do up at the mines that go against all environmental regulations. They've been made to bury things in the muskegs. Muskegs are kind of swampy areas. They're like big sponges. There's water in them and under them. They've been made to bury radioactive and toxic materials in those muskegs. They've been they made to fudge the numbers, fake the numbers. When there's over contamination that's going into the affluent waters, into the systems. Chemical pays for a lot of research at the University of Saskatchewan. Millions and millions of dollars. They call it their lab. 
we've gotten hold of some of that research and it shows that the smallest, the tiniest of the flora and fauna are being impacted. Now, if it's affecting the tiniest because they've got a quick turnaround in their life cycles compared to a moose, compared to a human, it's affecting everything. So what we're seeing is going to compound over generations. It's going to affect our ability to thrive, our children's and grandchildren's ability to thrive. We feel, we have a story up here. We've known about uranium forever. There was an old grandmother. She was walking a trail with her granddaughter and up ahead she saw black rock sticking out of the ground and she gasped and she ran and sat herself down on top of that rock. And she told her granddaughter, tell, you, tell the people, tell the family, tell everyone, never come here. This rock was never supposed to come out of the ground. It's supposed to be in the ground to control the thunder beans, to control the climate. They've been digging this out 60 years. Now we're seeing impacts everywhere around the world. The world was actually becoming less radioactive over the last millions and millions of years. And since they started breaking these atoms, decreating the world, decreating the building blocks of this world, we're becoming more radioactive again. And then there's the insanity of having world leaders in place that want nuclear weapons and want to use them as a threat even. It's so absolutely wrong. This world needs our protection. Our future generations need our help. Masichu. That was Candace Paul, an artist and activist of the English River First Nations in northern Saskatchewan, Canada. She works with the group Committee for Future Generations, and we will have a link to that up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 411. Leona Morgan is of the Diné people in what the Western world thinks of as Arizona and New Mexico. She works with a multitude of groups, including Hall No. At one point in her presentation, she refers to a map, and we have it posted on our website so you can follow along with what she's saying. Here's Leona Morgan. Good morning. Leona Morgan in I have been doing work on uranium mining uh, for uh, about 12 years now, um, maybe a couple years I took a break, but um, not until 2012, I learned about the nuclear fuel chain. And I met Candice and Ashish, I met both of them in, in 2015 at a gathering of activists in um, Quebec City, Quebec. And this was a really good gathering. Um, and I think the beginning of uh, my interest in talking to folks internationally. So everything Candace said, um, I love hearing Candace speak. And I just heard a recording. I, I recorded Candace and some other speakers at this conference last summer talking about mining. And so the story of mining in indigenous communities is, is usually the same story. Uh, you have the companies come in, you have whatever they're taking out, um, they make money, and we get left with the, with the mess, we get left with the health problems and the sicknesses, um, and, and often, often the, the mess is not cleaned up. So we're, le we're left with not just uh, contaminated mine sites, but uh, contamination to our water and um, our, our sacred places and 
everything Candace said, it's, 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 it's also happened down here in New Mexico, um, increased uh, cancer rates, um, issues with reproductive health, um, and we don't know what will happen in the future. There's not a lot of studies between uh, uranium mining and cancer, but there's a couple studies happening here um, in New Mexico. Uh, one study is, it's called the Navajo Birth Cohort Study. And there are, I can, I can send some links to Nikki if people are interested, but one of the most um, shocking findings is that women who live near abandoned mine sites and are exposed over long periods of time to low-level ionizing radiation are seeing impacts to their, their children. Um, one thing that they noticed is that there's urine, I'm sorry, there's uranium in the urine of, of the babies who are born in these areas. Um, and so even though the mining happened in the, you know, the, the, the major mining was between the 1950s to the 1970s, um, these, these health impacts are still seen today and um, not really addressed. We have um, over 15,000 abandoned mines in the United States, uh, uranium mines. Um, I heard there's over 600,000 of all types and the uranium mining was mostly for weapons. And so these were mines that were used um, by the DOD, the Department of Defense and, and the Department of Energy for purposes of war, for military. Um, and today there's also some mining and since the 70s, that's when they started using nuclear power. So we're dealing with these huge, huge monsters of U.S. imperialism, U.S. capitalism, U.S. greed. And now we have this, this other problem, which people are not um, considering the, the true impact of nuclear when we're talking about climate change. So internationally, that's one of the, the campaigns I work on is called Don't Nuke the Climate because people think that nuclear power is a clean form of energy. And I think all of us um, here on the panel and all of you know that's not true um, because they only calculate the carbon emissions from the power plant, but they don't include the mining, the milling, all the processing, and then all the transport. And then the biggest issue we're dealing with now is the nuclear waste. Um, so there's nuclear waste from weapons uh, I'm going to start talking a little bit about the problems we have in New Mexico because New Mexico is um, what we call, I like to call it, you know, the beginning of the, I used to call it the birthplace of nuclear colonialism, but one of my indigenous uh, sisters who works on, their, their, their land was stolen to build the Los Alamos National Labs. Los Alamos National Labs um, took land from a few uh, communities, Pueblo communities, um, San Ildefonso and Santa Clara. And um, these, these, these two communities, they're still de dealing with the impacts from that facility. Um, there was a lot of waste dumped in their, in their land. And it's, it's really incredibly hard to fight because um, it's a national lab and there's a lot of money that goes to the lab for new weapons. But anyways, so my friend, um, her name is Beata Sosipena. She works for an organization called Tewa Women United, and she doesn't like to use the term birthplace. Um, birthplace is, or because I say New Mexico is the birthplace of nuclear colonialism, but but 
the term birth is is a, a term of um, a sacred event that happens when a woman gives life. So she doesn't like us to say anything about you know birthing the 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 bomb and things like that because it's it's really um, you know we're we're comparing it to this sacred thing when really these are um, mechanisms of death and destruction. So, so I'm going to, that's just a little story we share. I shared from her because they work on issues of a uh, reference man. So their community is dealing with the, um, the impacts to the women and they're, they're really focused on women's health because as we know, radiation hurts women and children and, and the unborn more than, uh, the, the standard that was created by the international atomic energy agency, which is called reference man. So Table Woman United, they're working on reference woman, which, which I love. I think it's great, a great way to decolonize this um, horrible uh, standard. But um, anyways, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit about some of the issues in New Mexico. Um, just like Los Alamos National Labs, we have Sandia National Labs. So in New Mexico, we have two facilities. We have many facilities. I'm not going to be able to talk about every single one of them. Um, WIP, WIP is a place, I think a lot of you have heard of the waste isolation pilot plant. WIP was supposed to hold transuranic waste, so waste that has plutonium in it, um, for 10,000 years. And within the first 20 years, um, in less than 15 years, there was already a fire and a, and a huge radiation leak. And so WIP is um, the only deep geological repository in the United States, but it's for transuranic waste. And only, only 15 miles, mm, a drive about 15 miles, but as the crow flies, about 12 miles northeast of WIP, they're proposing uh, what's called a um, high-level temporary waste dump. So this is, um, we call it CIS, Consolidated Interim Storage, meaning this is gonna be a waste dump for all the waste from nuclear power plants across the country but only temporarily for a hundred years. I'm going to um, try to share a, a picture here um, on my screen, if you guys can see it. We have, um, yeah. we have uh, uh, this, can you see the, oh. can you see the image of the United States with all the mining, um, yes. with all the, um, okay. So, so this is, um, these are all the power plants in the United States. And right now the biggest fight we have is that there's no permanent, place to put the waste. Um, Yucca Mountain was one site that they identified. And we, um, we know Nevada will never let that happen. The state of Nevada has fought Yucca, um, which is also on indigenous lands, on Shoshone lands, where they did over a thousand test bombings of uh, nuclear weapons. So it's a very contaminated place, but it's also on a, on a very unstable land. So anyways, Yucca is not going to ever be built. And so the United States is saying, well, let's take it to New Mexico um, just until we figure out what we're going to do with it uh, until, until we have a permanent place. So it's only temporary for 40 years, but that can expand to 120 years. And um, we know if they move it here temporarily, it could possibly become permanent. And so we don't believe the United States and the company that this is only temporary. So there's, um, I don't know if you can see my cursor, there's, a, uh, there's two sites. One is from a company called, a proposal from Holtec International, and then another proposal from a company called Waste Control Specialists. These two sites are 40 miles apart. So um, 
Yes, this is one of the biggest fights. And um, okay, how do I unshare my? <laughs> so I'm going to try to unshare this now. Okay, can you guys see me now? Okay, my time is basically up. But if you can see, I'm going to show you guys. Uh, this is this is what the map looks like. So you can see Holtec. This is New Mexico, and then Whip Whip is right there. That's already a waste dump. This is a low-level waste dump, and we're fighting the largest waste dump that they're proposing for all the waste from all the power plants in the whole country. So in New Mexico, um, we're dealing with the past uranium mines, the abandoned mines. We're dealing with Obama signing uh, a trillion dollars, a couple trillions of dollars to go into the nuclear modernization of all the weapons um, for the next 30 years. And, and, and for people like my friend I talked about, they're, they're near Los Alamos. This is just an incredible fight. Um, they're dealing with the building of more plutonium pits. And, and so we're, we're, we're constantly trying to deal with what was left behind. And yet there's more and more that are things that are happening. Um, there's, two, there's no mining in New Mexico, but there is some mining in the United States of uranium. And so in New Mexico, we're fighting this nuclear waste dump and then also proposals for new mining on one of our sacred mountains. So those are, that's just a little bit about all the fights. Leona Morgan of the Diné people. You can learn more about the work that she and her group are doing at the Facebook group Halt Holtec. Of course, we will link to it. And we will also have a link up to the Navajo birth cohort study. So you can find out more specifically exactly what health problems the babies of the Diné people are facing. The third speaker was Ashish Biruli of the traditional Adivasi people from Jharkhand in India. The strictures he talks about in certain areas of India against doctors accurately diagnosing and treating victims of radiation exposure is downright horrifying. Give a listen. Um, and I'll stop there and, and, and give, um, it, I'll be happy to answer any questions um, after Ashish speaks. So. Thank you very much, and I'm um, I'm really happy that you're doing this, Nikki. Good good job. Thank you. My time starts now. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so uh, in India, uh, from where I belong, the, I said that it's the uh, first uranium mining in India. So uranium uh, mining started uh, since uh, 1967 and the villages in Jadugura, it took almost 30 years for them to realize that it is very dangerous for them. So in my community, we indigenous people, first of all, we are afraid of people who say that if any projects come, they uh, say good things about us. So we have, uh, we have a proverb in uh, indigenous community that whoever talks good about indigenous are the most dangerous people because everything what everything started by saying that they are going to uh, bring uh, uh, employment uh, they will change lifestyle of uh, indigenous community so all these things are uh, very good in listening but in fact it's very dangerous the project which they bring and the future which, uh, which will uh, destruct the lives of indigenous, it's very dangerous. So uh, it took 30 years. So there were no uh, 
authorities that will aware us about these uh, problems so people had their own experience like my own grandfather was an employee in the uranium mine uh, he he suffered from lung cancer and he uh, died uh, before i was born and my grandmother also died so the thing is yeah i understand my grandfather died because he was an employee and there were possibilities that he was exposed to uranium mine but how did my grandmother how did she die when asking some experts they said that my fa- uh, grandfather used to bring his urine uh, uniform which he used to go in the mine used to bring uh, uh, to home and my grandmother used to wash those clothes so my grandmother also was exposed so there were no awareness that they were provided and uh, uh, the thing is uh, we have uranium mining and we also have a processing mill next to the uranium mine and the waste which they are uh, producing they are storing in open near my village uh, right now i am just 500 meter from the telling pond and the nearest villages are like 100 meter away 100 meter away from the telling pond so the people are affected and here the uh, the thing is we have understood like uh, we have uh, we have witnessed like if you go 20 meter 20 miles or 20 kilometer away from jadugura there are no such problems so our biggest question is why so we have done lots of studies in jadugura and when we do some independent surveys health studies and we when we uh, gather information the uh, uranium company or the government they do a counter study that what studies uh, we have done they uh, prove it wrong saying that it is not liable and they do every time they do the counter surveys so it's very and in india the people the majority the villages or the public they believe that whatever government says that is fact and we as a normal people what we say is false so it's very uh, difficult for us to convince people because like if i i raise a question and if i ask anything related to uh, radiation uranium mining or everything uh, uh, whole nuclear industry they question us that who are you to question this you are not an academic and you are not uh, so showing anything according to scientific basis how can you say that these problems are because of radiation so these are the basic problems and yeah we can the people uh, uh, who are uh, near very close to the telling pond the biggest problem is they Uh, they uh, we are not able to see deformities there because the radiation so high the children are not able to get born into this new world the, the women are uh, uh, having miscarriages there but the places far away like 5 km 4 km there is low radiation and the low radiation is the biggest threat because where there is low radiation we are able to see some uh, visibility of radiation effects we see deformities 
and to name some of the uh, problems i say people are suffering from hair loss megacephalic gastrocystis lung cancer and the majority of the problem is down syndrome lots of children are facing down syndrome problems and one more very uh, very sad thing is company shows the uranium company is so bad that it shows that there is no cancer in these places and people get confused that in a uh, in a place where there is nuclear facility uranium facility it is impossible that no people will uh, get cancer it is very common that people will get cancer but the problem is all the doctors when a, when a victim goes to for a checkup in the local to see a doctor the doctor are personally warned by the uranium company that if you get a symptoms of cancer don't disclose to the patient so they keep it secret they don't tell the uh, uh, patient that you are suffering from cancer cancer so what they say is the uh, the minor who are actually uh, suffering from cancer they are told by the doctor that they are suffering from tuberculosis so what the patient do is they take the medicine they take the medicine and they uh, they take the medicine of tuberculosis and finally having medicine they they die so in this we say that in 21st century we our science has developed so much that tuberculosis is easily easily curable but people in jadugoda they are the tuberculosis is not getting cured and no people uh, i met a person recently uh, he was in department of atomic energy and he was a scientist from delhi and he was the only person from uranium company to tell people about the problems and uranium company just threatened him that you are not allowed to disclose anything you are not allowed to uh, say you are not allowed to give awareness to the people so the people the uh, in india the biggest problem what we are facing right now is uh, i think we are just wanting to show the indian government is wanting to show that we are capable of competing china uh, pakistan so uh, some ridiculously they are doing these things so if uh, i feel like if all these things they are doing is ultimately they are making nuclear weapons ultimately they need nuclear weapons because i don't think whatever promise they had made to the villagers long before nothing has been fulfilled till now so they think uh, they make people very full full all the time even today when the miners go inside the mine they are given dosimeters so that the exposure the how much exposure they are getting it measures but none of the measurement is uh, uh, disclosed to the uh, miners none of the and the and the worst problem is with the contract laborers the contract laborers are the only people who are sent to work where high level radiation is there and if anything happens to them government uh, 
government neither the uranium company is responsible and we are uh, right now here the quality of uranium is not so good it's very poor it's very poor yeah you have to uh, mine dozen of uranium more to get uh, a little bit of gram of uranium and because of this lots of uranium waste is being done yeah we believe that yeah we have witnessed because we have protested we villages have protested and there have been some success uh, we have achieved but i don't think that is considered i don't think that is called an achievement yeah because the company will be staying here unless uh, till the till the company has its uh, lease right now they have a 50 years of lease yeah 50 years of lease and after that the company will get shut down automatically and they will be leaving us we will be left behind with all the massive radioactive waste like leona said the block, most of the mines are being abandoned and we feel like after 50 years 60 years the same situation will be here in jadugoda all will be abandoned and no will nobody will be responsible nobody will be we feel like we feel very demoralized because i have witnessed even after so much protest nothing is happening nothing is happening right now the uh, the company is playing divide and rule with the villagers the villagers who are employ are employees in the company they are standing against us like these uh, against the activists who are anti nuclear like we are considered as these are the people who are going to snatch our jobs and we will be jobless so these are the problems we are facing in our uh, society uh, we are very we feel very vulnerable and one more in all these uh, problems uh, we cannot the, the government should uh, cannot uh, cannot uh, cannot avoid us yeah in the name of development in the name of fake uh, nuclear pride the nation is uh, is uh, sacrificing uh, so many lives we feel like we are like guinea pigs uh, it's so uh, very bad situation is here and and uh, i have i am studying lots of struggles from leona navajo nation what navajo nation has uh, experienced we are very much influenced and yeah we have uh, started our protest very late but uh, we are not going to quit and the the one thing we uh, always regret even my uh, grandfather say that if we if they knew that all these problems are going to happen that they would have never allowed the government to establish the uranium mine and we also see india is doing lots of nuclear deals with us and i think it is affecting india lots of new nuclear facilities are being uh, uh, are uh, explored now uh, and it, it's uh, getting increased year by year even after the protest they are using uh, they are using uh, force they are doing it by force uh, 
and even even if people protest there i i feel that yeah lots of sacrifice has to be made and we have to be ready for it in no cost and i feel that if any any nuclear nuclear deal you should uh, i accept expect that you all will uh, stand with all the indigenous people not just of india with uh, with canadian indigenous with american indigenous and all even the australian indigenous and we and whenever the nuclear deal happens please protest against it as much as you can and abolish everything that was ashish biruli of the traditional adivasi people from jharkhand in india we will have a link up to the group that he works with along with links to two articles that he wrote most notably the one entitled i've seen my own relatives die of radiation life as an activist son in jadugoda the full uranium impacted communities webinar ran 90 minutes and included an international q and a it's well worth your listen and it's posted on the facebook group stop new nuclear of course we will have a link to it up on our website nuclearhotseat.com under this episode number 411 activist shout out first of all making up for an oversight from last week our thanks to erica gray who posts the nuclear regulatory commission reactor reports and has been a source for nuclear hot seat for years She was the one behind the information in last week's duck and cover report and brain fart, low blood sugar, whatever it was, I neglected to mention her name. Thanks for all of your help through the years, Erica, and let's keep going. Congratulations to Atomic Homefront. The documentary about the illegally buried nuclear waste in North St. Louis and its consequences on the health of the community. This film just won the Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award. So congratulations all around to director Rebecca Kamisa, producer Jim Friedberg, and all the mothers and children and families from North St. Louis who were featured in this film. Another film, Power Struggle. It's Robbie Lepser's timely documentary chronicling a successful grassroots citizens effort to shut down an aging nuclear power plant in Vermont. Now, Power Struggle has sparked a four-part series of half-hour Facebook live conversations about nuclear power, safety, waste, and environmental justice. The series airs on Free Speech TV during May on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. The series premiered last week, and this week, on Wednesday, May 8, I will be on along with Solartopia's Harvey Wasserman and Tim Judson, head of Nuclear Information and Resource Service. Again, that's 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific time. Robbie Lepser will serve as moderator, and of course, everything will be available on Free Speech TV. Another link we will provide you, but join us live if you can. And regarding HBO's new series on Chernobyl, coverage of the first episode in mainstream media revealed naive TV reviewers gasping and showing their nuclear ignorance and surprise as to the severity of the accident and the fact that can you believe it governments actually cover up what happened in order to preserve their nuclear programs can you imagine and of course 
these reviewers are cleaving to what is put forth in the program as the IAEA, World Health Organization, UNSCEAR party line, claiming this time, quote, at least 31 people died from Chernobyl. We've had school shootings in the United States that killed more than that. Chernobyl killed hundreds of thousands of people, according to the work done by Alexei Yablokov and the Nesterenkos in the book Chernobyl, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment, and more recently, Kate Brown's superb book Manual for Survival, which tracks hundreds of thousands of deaths as recorded in Eastern Europe medical archives. And Chernobyl is still killing people. So getting back to this HBO series, it's dramatic and it's powerful, especially to people who don't understand what it was or what it did. And it joins its voice to a chorus of high-profile ignoramuses, minimizing the ongoing ultimate health impact of that radiological disaster. So what else is new? Still, friends in the anti-nuclear community have told me that the film is worth watching, so if you enjoy it, let me know. Here's today's final thought, and it comes from Dr. James Muller. He is a cardiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and a co-founder of International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1985. Now, recent events, such as the incendiary dialogue between the United States and North Korea, have prompted him to renew his anti-nuclear work. When asked why should doctors get involved with trying to prevent nuclear war, he said, Part of the nuclear problem is the word that often comes up, unimaginable. And my doctor's contributions is to make the darn thing imaginable. You know, talk about the burned children that will result from the use of nuclear weapons, to make the point that this could happen. Regarding whether his activism in the 80s was heard, he said, yes, it was definitely heard. The number of nuclear weapons in 1985, the year we were given the Nobel Peace Prize, was about 60,000 most of them belonging to Russia and the U.S. After that, there was a broad public consensus against the number of nuclear weapons, and the numbers began to fall. So many parts of the nuclear story are horrible to think about, but one wonderful thing is that, after 1985, they began to dismantle thousands of Russian and American nuclear weapons. We're down to 15,000 now, but that's from over 60,000. He pulled back from activism for a while, but has now become involved again. Why? Dr. Muller said, because we've made progress in numbers, but there are now nine nuclear weapons states. There were six at the time. The weapons have spread to North Korea and Pakistan and India. Secondly, terrorism has gone up, and the terrorists want to get these weapons. And thirdly, We're building new types of nuclear weapons so that we can win a nuclear war. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which tracks nuclear risk, has said we're two minutes away from midnight. We're as close to nuclear war as we were in 1953. And why do we not see huge headlines about that? It's a hidden threat. You know, the environmental threat is in our face. We see the fires. We see the floods. The nuclear one, it's like a hidden dragon that's kind of hidden underneath the surface so you can't see it. It rears its head periodically. Our generation has lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis. 
we were within minutes of an all-out nuclear war with Russia. Then we had 1980 with the Cold War. And now we have Kim Jong-un and President Trump talking about fire and fury that will come with nuclear weapons. It's going to be there forever. This is a permanent problem for humanity. Each generation will have to solve it and contain it because of that. Dr. James Muller, co-founder of International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, from an interview with Deb Becker on WBUR in Boston. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 7, 2019. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net and our friend Sean McGee, deunbernard.wordpress.com and our friend Hervé Courtois, miningawareness.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear International, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Thanks to all of you for listening, and a big shout-out to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world. 123 countries you are in. You are on six continents, and we are counting. If you haven't already done so, go to our Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page, like it, share it, respond to a post. If you leave a comment, I'm getting much better about getting back to you, and we'll start a dialogue. All 410 of our back episodes are up at NuclearHotSeat.com and available for your perusal. And I always forget to tell you about my book, so I'm not going to do that now. It's called Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat, and you can find it on Amazon. It's a really good read. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. Com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation of any size to NuclearHotSeat.com. We will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2019, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that the last thing anyone who opposes nuclear wants to be able to say is, I told you so. Let's not go there. So there you have it. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.